Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. I do know if we stay here, we die. Sooner or later, we die. If this planet don't kill us, we're going to kill each other. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1985 sci-fi drama Enemy Mine, starring Jaws 3 alumni Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr., directed by Wolfgang Peterson. This movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of 1 hour and 48 minutes. Enemy Mine is based on the 1979 novella of the same name, written by Barry Longyear. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Sworn enemies. They had to become friends to survive. Louis Gossett Jr. and Dennis Quaid battle each other and a hostile planet in this highly imaginative, visually stunning adventure set on a desolate, distant world. The time is the future, and a savage war rages between Earth and the planet Drakon, which is inhabited by intelligent lizard-like creatures. Earth pilot Davage, Quaid, is waging a screaming dogfight against the Drak Jariba Shigan, Gaza Jr., when they crash land on the fiery barren planet Firing 4. Though they're both stranded, the two sworn enemies can think only of destroying each other. Until they come to realize the only way either will survive is for both to overcome their undying hatred. Touching and thrilling, Enemy Mind reaches beyond the boundaries of its genre to become a drama of universal emotions that's a tale of friendship, honor, and love. Enemy Mind. Enemy Mind. That's the movie we'll be discussing for this episode. Jason, how are we doing? I'm doing great, Bill Bant. This is a pleasure, man. Uh, oh, I watched this movie a lot as a kid, and I, I'm ready to break it down. All right, so let's get into earliest memories. What are earliest memories of Enemy Mine? Well, Bill Bant, it's pretty simple for me. I think of Dennis Quaid. I think of how I admired Louis Gossett Jr. for his performance under so much makeup, and I see the color red. That is an early memory for me, Bill Bant. The color red, whenever I think of this movie, I see that red color of the planet of Firing 5, on which our two main characters have crash-landed. I think of the red rocks and lakes and dusty terrain and caves and harsh conditions. I do remember watching this film on cable and or VHS repeatedly, as I had mentioned as a kid. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. A residual effect of the impact that Star Wars had on me was that I immediately was drawn to any film that took place in space, had spaceships or starfighters or space planets and space aliens and space lasers. If I knew a movie had any or all of those elements, I was going to see it. So I had maybe seen Dennis Quaid in the right stuff or clips from Jaws 3D. I I don't believe even to this day, honestly, Bill Bant, that I've seen Jaws 3 in its entirety. What? I I know, I know. It's a sin. But I can't say I was all too familiar with Dennis Quaid in 1985. It wouldn't be until Inner Space in 1987 that Quaid would be more known to me. But I remember always enjoying him as a leading man. He had the looks, the boyish charm, the smile, a real energy about him, and a cowboy quality that I liked. As far as Louis Gossett Jr., I mean, I think I was aware he had an iconic role in An Officer and a Gentleman, 
And I was not familiar with him from Jaws 3D, of course, but this is a reunion for both Quaid and Gossett Jr., seeing as though they both were in Jaws 3D. But because when I got around to seeing Enemy Mine on VHS or cable, it was probably in 1986, and that would coincide with the other great fighter plane film of the era, Iron Eagle, in which Gossett Jr. plays the beloved character Chappie. I loved him in that movie as Jason Gedrick's mentor. So that was just an early memory of Louis Gossett Jr. for me. And I think when I saw Enemy Mine, I associated him with Iron Eagle. But of course, I knew he was under a ton of makeup. And I was like, man, this guy's a good actor. So just staying with Louis Gossett Jr. for a moment, I definitely had an appreciation for him as a, a somewhat serious actor that played roles with a certain gravitas and wisdom. So I brought that attachment to him while watching Enemy Mine. And it was this movie being, for the most part, a two-hander, meaning that it relies heavily on just two main characters, that it just relies heavily on Gossett and the, his believability of the, his performance under so much makeup and prosthetics. Not to mention, he's definitely unrecognizable. And I remember that as a kid. Like, I just found that I respected him so much more. The fact that he took this role knowing you couldn't see his face. He checked his ego and vanity at the door to play a role where you just wouldn't know who he was until the credits rolled. So I just, as a kid, those were the kind of the things I thought about. I was like, huh, man, this guy uh, took a chance to doing this part. Lastly, my early memory attachments to this film and what made it a repeat watch for me was the central theme of friendship. I remember initially loving the concept of two mortal enemies being stranded on an alien planet who are forced to work together to survive. But as a kid, I just enjoyed watching the arc of their relationship and the resulting bond that is forged and how in the end they truly cared for one another. And, you know, this film begins as a self-preservation survival film. It's kill or be killed, but becomes a selfless story about saving your friend. You know, and listen to the Outsiders pod if you haven't already to listen to me go on how I'm a sucker for male bonding or just really good character bonding stories in general. And that's what this is. This film is a love story. Now, don't get me wrong. I have the flash memories of the special effects and plot points and inciting events, i.e. Gossett Jr.'s alien birthing scene. But it's more about the friendship for me that at least that's what I remember the most. And yeah, to be transparent, Bill and I, We watched this film just a few years back uh, for research for another concept we were working on. And it's interesting because I have memories of that viewing. Now it's a mixture of my opinion of this film as a child and the nostalgic attachment I have to this film as a child, but then my opinion of it watching it three years ago, and then my opinion as it changed even more watching it today. So Bill Bant, what are your earliest memories of Enemy Mine? Enemy Mine, for me, I did not see in the 80s. I did not see it until my freshman year of college. It was spring of 91. And when I went to the University of Miami, my parents pretty much said, the only time you're coming home is if the school kicks you off campus. And that meant winter break and summer break. But I guess for some reason, my parents um, had some money. They could fly me back. I really didn't have any spring break plans anyway. So I came home. And basically what I did for that week was... I watched 25 movies in five days. I just went to the video store and I just rented five movies at a time and just watched them all. And Enemy Mind was in that list. And it was all like those, I don't want to say B-level movies, but all those movies that just kind of didn't hit at the box office, like Black Moon Rising, Electric Dreams, another Dennis Quaid movie, Dreamscape, 
um, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. All those movies, I would go to the video store, I'd pick it up and go, I don't know anything about this movie. But now that I was in college and film school and hear people talk about this stuff, I was like, all right, this is the time to go and just catch up on all these 80s movies that I missed. And this was one of them. And I did like the concept. Here you go. You have two people on different sides of a war. They land on a, a planet. They got to work together. You find out one of them is about to have a child. And then he unfortunately dies. And then I remember the third act kind of being disappointing. So I'm kind of excited to talk about this movie again. Because I, I remember not liking the third act. But going back to watch this, I kind of remembered more of the third act than I remembered the first two acts of the movie. So I know, like you said, we watched this pre-COVID. Well, next to the last movie that we probably watched together in person. So, that's, yeah, that's my earliest memories. Watching a shit ton of movies for spring break my freshman year of college. 25 and 5. Yeah. I used to have it all written down. I wish I Love had it. that list so I knew exactly everything was. Because there's always like one movie that I, I rented that was for the family. So anybody that wanted to watch it. And then the other four basically for me. It's like whenever I went, went to bed, I watched one. And then I got up in the morning and I watched three straight, went right back to the video store and did the whole process again. It was kind of funny because I check them out. And the guy's like, you're going to watch all these? I'm like, yep. And by the third day, it was, you know, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're going to watch all these. You're for reals, man. But you got to remember they're 80s movies. So they're not not like now where every movie is like four hours long. They're all under two hours. You can make it happen. Oh, it's doable. I'm impressed with you, Bill. That's so, great. Something that's, I wish I could fun. do again at some point. I just don't have the time. That sounds like it would be a fun tradition, something you would do annually, like with a group of friends. Oh, yeah. Where you would plan, okay, it's movie marathon week. Or like I said, if you called it 25 and 5, as if it was a challenge among you and your friends, that'd be something that you probably and most likely would do when you were younger and had a lot more free time. Yeah. Not as practical these days, but you could still still do it at least once. Mm -hmm. you know? That would be fun. Good stuff, man. So let's move on to initial thoughts. What are initial thoughts with Enemy Mind watching it? Yeah, watching it today. Well, I'll start off with Air Director Wolfgang Peterson, German-born director. I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot of his filmography. Tell me if you've heard of these films. Das Boot, otherwise known as The Boat from 1981. This film, Enemy Mind from 1985, Shattered from 1991, In the Line of Fire, from 1993, awesome. Outbreak from 1995, awesome. Air Force One from 1997, awesome. The Perfect Storm from 2000, yeah, pretty solid. And Troy from 2004, your mileage may vary on that, but Brad Pitt's beautiful in it. Wait, Jason. Poseidon? Jason, Jason. Yeah. You missed one. Wh which one did the, I miss? The Never Ending Story, which I know is one of your favorites. Oh, did I? I <laughs> There's a reason why I missed it, clearly. It's because I still have never seen it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's funny that I was so focused on that when I was doing my notes, and I completely left it off the list. Such a, a monumental film for so many people in their formative years in the 80s. The never-ending story. So the list kind of, in a way, just goes on and on. It's just hit after hit. He had a couple of misses. For instance, you know, Poseidon in 2006, which was the reboot of the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, not quite as successful. There you go. Wolfgang Peterson, stud, hit maker. Unfortunately, did, you know, pass away in August of 2022, but had a full life, passed away at the age of 81. So moving into my main initial thoughts of Enemy Mine. I do love the concept of this film, without question, at the risk of being redundant. Yes, two warriors on opposite sides stranded together 
coming together, overcoming obstacles, becoming friends in the process. One is human, one is alien. Great. Apparently, I love this concept so much that it seeped into my unconscious, and I worked a version of this into my current graphic novel project. I only realized that today upon delving deeper into this film. I mean, there are many similar elements about humans versus aliens and who is the real enemy in this concept that I developed a handful of years ago and now is being developed in a graphic novel and I'll hopefully be able to present that to the public in the near future. However, uh, just made me think about when writing, you you think you're coming up with like an original thought or an original subject matter. or And when the truth is we are what we know and we will inevitably borrow from stories we've heard before that resonate with us. It's pretty cool when you recognize that. And this film resonated with me and the relationship within it resonated with me as a child. Also, this concept, Bill Bant, made me think of one of my favorite Battlestar Galactica episodes. When Lieutenant Starbuck is stranded on a desert planet with a Cylon Centurion that he reprograms and they manage to survive side by side. That episode was named The Return of Starbuck and is the 10th and final episode of the 1980 spin-off TV series Galactica 1980. Due to consistently failing ratings since the three-part opening, ABC canceled the spin-off series following the broadcast of that episode. Yeah. It's crazy. This is one of my favorite episodes. And the concept is, at least in the beginning of this epi- of that episode, is identical to this concept. But it was from 1980, and this film is in 1985. So I was wondering, is The Return of Starbuck based loosely on the novella, which Enemy Mine is based know. on? Regardless, moving on with my initial thoughts. An almost immediate initial thought is that this film feels dated in a weird way. It has the look of a late 70s film or early 80s film at best, not 1985. It's a mixture of the production design and special effects, spacecraft, spacesuits, the art design of outer space itself, etc. But speaking of Battlestar Galactica, for example, the Drac Starfighter ships are almost exact replicas of the Cylon Raiders from Battlestar Galactica 1978. It's ridiculous. They look exactly like Cylon Raiders. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm digging it because I love Cylon Raiders. I love Battlestar, but got to give credit where credit's due. Now, the idea of Gossett Jr.'s alien, the Drac species, the alien species doesn't have one dominant sexual orientation or binary orientation as in male or female, but instead it has both or what is described as intersexual. It's just a smart concept. I love that idea. And for the sake of this discussion on this pod, we most likely and probably mistakenly will refer to the Drac alien as him or as he, because the actor in the alien suit is a male. However, we are aware that he, being the character of Jeriba Shagan, a.k.a. Jerry, is an alien. And it's cool that it would make sense that out there in the middle of the wide, wide, magnificent universe, there would be the possibility that all members of an alien species could be intersexual, that they may have the ability to reproduce on their own, the ability of self-fertilization, that there's only one parent that gives birth to a child. It's a cool concept. So I dig that. That's an initial thought. I've always had the question about breathable atmosphere on alien planets in early 80s sci-fi space adventure films. Would just appreciate one line explaining that the atmosphere isn't toxic to humans. We never get that in 80s. It just cracks me up. That's initial thought. As soon as Davich is out of his spacesuit and on the terrain of this alien planet, just breathing the atmosphere like that. That was one of my complaints. Yeah, I'm sorry for stepping on it. It's just funny. 
Also, Bill Bant, is Davidge's weapon a, a 22 revolver in this? Is it a Walter PBK? Oh, is that what he's that carrying? was cracking me up. I'm like 100 years from now, we're still using the <laughs> regular guns. Because this is, film is supposed to take place circa 2092. And I was like, okay, maybe, you know, if I'm thinking we're in 2023 right now as we're recording this, and you think, okay, about 70 years from now, well, I don't know, probably wouldn't be carrying a, a 22 pistol. I'm just, I'm playing around here. Also, another question for you, Bill Bant. After he drops the twenty-two, or if if I that I've been right about the caliber of the weapon, does Davich? This is Dennis Quaid's character. Does he pull out a kitchen steak knife? That's what I thought it was at first too. And then they had another shot of it, and I was like, "Oh, okay, it looks more like a hunter knife." It, it looks a little well, bit first, better. Yeah, I'm wondering if they had two different knives. Right. Uh, these are just some fun initial thoughts. Having fun with this. Uh, I love there's a, a fear factor. What I'm calling the fear factor moment when uh, Willis E. Davich. Our fighter pilot, Dennis Quaid, he has to eat the giant slug on a stick, not hot dog on a stick. This is slug on a stick. That's an awfully big risk. He's just going to eat this alien slug on an alien planet. Yeah. No repercussions from that. No stomach Thought ache. Same thing. No uh, instant uh, death or disease. <laughs> just like, what are you, what's yep. happening here? Uh, here's another initial thought. I did appreciate the save the cat moment for Jerry, the drac. We call him Jerry because... His name is actually, if I'm pronouncing this right, Jeriba, but because of this language barrier and uh, confusion and communication, Davich calls the drag Jerry for short. And Jerry, played by Louis Gossett Jr., saves Davich from a meteor hailstorm in the beginning of the film. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool because at this point in the story, Davich is out to murder the drag Jerry. But when Jerry has an opportunity to take out Davich, he actually saves his life. It's a good save the cat moment. I just thought that was an initial thought. Look, I definitely have an appreciation for the thought and detail put into the creation characterization of this Drac species, of the Drac character, Jeriba Shagan, which is not only a testament to the makeup and costuming, but of course, Gossett Jr.'s performance. Gossett Jr.'s physicality is head tilting, the laugh, the vocal intonations, which sound like gurgling mouthwash and rolling R's speaking all at the same time. The reptilian design is pretty cool. For the listener that hasn't seen Enemy Mine, the Drac species is bipedal, has a bit of a fish face, and Davich actually calls him Toad Face as a derogatory moniker repeatedly throughout the film. He has a, a pointed skull in the back, weird inflating sacks for ears, bumpy knotted red leather tough skin, three fingers on each hand. The Drac looks great. I love the design. And by the way, IMDb has Louis Gossett Jr. listed at a height of six foot four and a half. Did you know he was that tall? No, but Louis Gossett Jr. is a tall dude. It's funny you mentioned that because later in the movie, when we meet Byron James Stubbs, and I was surprised how tall he seemed. I looked him up and he was almost six three. I saw that as well. Yeah. Other initial thoughts the fear of being alone trumps whatever prejudice you may have toward another human being. That sentiment resonated with me in this in a particular scene I'll get into later. This film had some nice product placement for Pepsi. I'll just say that. I wish they would bring back that can design. Did, was that a, an actual design for soda cans where the curvature was in the center as if it was like an indentation in the center of the can allowing for a better grip? I don't know. It looked really cool. I was like, or maybe that was a futuristic design of what a soda can may look like. But I was like, they should implement that. I thought it was cool. 
here's another thought, man. It's funny to think that the puppetry and animatronics were so much better in the Dark Crystal, which preceded this by three years. I'm just that's just a comment. Oh yeah. Uh, I had remember, you know, I remember that I had forgotten that final act, which you touched upon earlier, Bill Bant. The third act in this film, even after just watching it a few years ago, even today, I'd forgotten parts of it. I have a block when it comes to the third act of this film, a mental block. So here's my overall initial thought. This film has two great stars. They're great actors. The concept is super solid. It's an interesting, topical, and relatable concept put in a world of science fiction. That's smart and impactful, if well executed. For me, however, the film does not execute to the fullest. That's my humble opinion simply doesn't fire on all cylinders. There's some good messages and themes portrayed here that still ring true in our society today, but I felt like they could be delved into deeper. A couple of scenes I preferred in this loud space movie were the quiet ones between two characters showing vulnerability and emotion and connection. My number one overall issue is the fact that the movie shifts tonally in its storyline at about the one hour and 10 minute mark. It's that third act problem that we are alluding to already. It becomes a different movie, in my opinion, a movie that's somewhat still entertaining to look at, but it's not the same story I invested in for the previous hour. Thus, it bothers me. I understand now my nostalgic attachment to this film because of the wondrous alien universe of the fiction and the bond of friendship portrayed. But today I watch it and it's a little clunky. It's not totally fleshed out. It's not fully committed to being a complete film about friendship. The third act detracts from the emotional weight of the first two. I still enjoyed seeing it again. I do like the sci-fi, but yeah, the movie's flawed. So there you go. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Bant? Jason, yeah, you certainly covered a lot of what I was going to say for initial thoughts. I mean, the two big things is the premise is we've seen it many times before. Two people from two different sides of the track having to work together to achieve a common goal. And in this case, it is just for survival. And then there's that whole thing of you never know how much each one trusts one another. And if they don't trust one another... They could die. So that premise I love. I think one of my favorite examples of that is the Defiant Ones. Tony Curtis, City Portier, when they're prisoners and they escape together and they have to work together in order for them to get away. We also have the Robinson Crusoe element to it. Here we are, two people stranded somewhere. They don't know their surroundings. How are they going to work, survive? It is funny. You did mention about the planet itself. I think it's called Farin 4. And at first I was like, oh my God, these look like such phony sets. But then I said to myself, you know what? I've never visited Farin 4, so maybe this is actually what it looks like. So I I shouldn't be so judgmental. So I quickly pushed that aside and just enjoyed it for what it was. This I found very interesting. The very beginning of the movie, we have Dennis Quaid do the opening narration of the movie as Willis Davidge. And he goes, by the late 21st century, the nations of Earth were finally at peace, working together to explore and colonize the distant reaches of space. Unfortunately, we weren't alone out there. A race of non-human aliens called the Drax were claiming squatters' rights to some of the richest star systems in the galaxy. Well, they were going to get it without a fight. Great. We finally achieved peace here on the planet. That is amazing because the way things are going right now, I don't see that happening anytime soon. It might take another 80 years. But then I'm thinking, okay, here we are off exploring space and we're trying to colonize new planets and we see people there and we're trying to take over. And all I'm thinking of, God, this reminds me a lot of our American history when we came here to America and we tried to kick the Native Americans out. Here it is. History is repeating itself. Even in the future, we're doing the same shit we used to do in the past. 
we're just going to war with them because they got somewhere first before us? I mean, what what are the resources that we need that we're warring over? Why are we not getting along with them? Because when you learn about the track, they seem like they're pretty peaceful people themselves. Right. It seems like we're the ones that started this. That's what I'm inferring from listening to that opening and then seeing what goes on in the movie. We, we can't learn. 100%. We just can't learn. 100%. Excellent point. The first two acts I really like with Jerry and Willis trying to work together, trying to make this work. And then the third act takes a weird shift, which is supposedly not in the novella. It's studio interference because they wanted some kind of action set piece at the end to make it exciting. And that's unfortunately not what happened. But what makes this movie work is Jerry and Willis working together. I wish they somehow maybe tied in Jerry and Willis battling against the slavers and trying to set them all free. Not having one of your most interesting characters die two thirds into the movie and then making a whole new set of circumstances. Exactly. So that was my issue. But for some reason, watching this time, it didn't seem as bad because I got a lot more out of Willis being uncle. That's what he's referred to as he spoilers. Jerry gets pregnant while on the planet and has a baby, dies during childbirth. And now Willis has to take care of this baby. And because the biology of Drax is different than us in about a year's time, this child is about, looks like your typical 10, 11 year old kid. And he gets kidnapped. And now because of the bond he's created with this child and his friendship with Jerry, he's going to do what it takes to rescue him from these slavers. I thought it was more interesting this time, but overall I wanted more Jerry and Willis. That's where it's at. Well, well said. Hey man, excellent point, especially about, yeah, that opening narration. And it's immediately like, so Dennis Quaid as this character, Willis E. Davidge is so confident saying, you know, oh, we finally have peace and now we're going to go out into the galaxy and conquer other species. (laughs) Okay. That doesn't sound like a peaceful race to begin with then. It is funny how history seems to repeat itself because- We come across planets that have a certain value, but they belong to someone else. And so we want what they have, and we're just going to take it. We are conquering species. What I love is the fact that he specifically points this out in an argument he has, which I will point out in my first favorite scene, as a matter of fact, where he is trying to make the argument to Jerry, the Drac alien, that he says, we legally annexed the system, which is a nice way of just saying, we took it from, we stole it from you. We just basically used uh, Politico speak, you know, right. to take what belonged to you. Uh, that's literally an issue we've had in our own U.S. history, especially with particular islands in the ocean. You know, we've annexed islands, and then later on, the indigenous people will go, "Uh, yeah, that's that's just a bunch of BS. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. We, this is our land. You just can't take it." Because you showed up one day and liked it and then took off, you know, or needed it for whatever purposes that served you at that time. You know, it's there's a there's a lot of it's complicated, right? It's problematic. There's a lot of problematic things in our own history that play out in this fictional tale. uh, So it makes sense. It's it's topical in that way. One of the things I do uh, like about this film a lot is, again, it's the fact that it is a two hander. The two-hander, again, means that the film is mainly about only two main characters. 
that's the whole story. It's just two characters carrying the film. And that means this story is going to be intimate. And that's what I appreciate about Enemy Mine. It's going to be the world, the universe of the story may be large, but the core of the story is quite small, just between two people, or in this case, a human and an alien. And frankly, I can connect to it a bit more on an emotional level. It's a little more impactful for me, but that's just my opinion. Is It's a lot more intimate, which I, I'm just saying I appreciate. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments of Enemy Mine? And I think you hinted at one of them, Jason. I might have the same one, but that's, that's all right. Go for it. Yeah, no problem. We'll both cover it in that case. And so my first favorite scene I'm calling Davich Learns to Read the Talman slash Meteor Storm. So just a little refresher course for our listeners. Uh, The year is circa 2092 in the not-so-distant future now, which is always crazy when we go back to our 80s films, and it's a film that takes place, which it seemed at that time, so far off in the future. And here we now are in 2023 going, oh, well, I mean, 70 years is still far off, but it's a lot closer than it was back in uh, 1985. Anyway, circa 2092, a war over these valuable planets has been waging between the human and Drax species and introduce Willis E. Davich, played by Dennis Quaid. Willis E. Davich, uh, often referred to as Dawich by uh, the Drac in this film. He is a fighter pilot stationed at a human international space station in the middle of a galaxy far, far away. And all of a sudden, Drax starfighters are approaching the space station and Quaid and his squadron mates are launched to defend and then attack. And Quaid gets into a dogfight with one of the Drac starfighters and they both crash land on an unexplored planet named uh, Firene or Firen 4. Doesn't take long before our human protagonist, Davich, encounters the Drac protagonist known as Jeriba Shigan or Jerry. And of course, they are at extreme odds with one another, only to find out quickly they must work together to survive. They save each other's lives a few different times. And now cut to my favorite first scene or first favorite scene, when Davich and Jerry have managed to get along somewhat at this point. And they're learning to speak one another's languages. I mean, communication is key. Communication is everything. So it's interesting how it works in this film. The Drac, a.k.a. Jerry, seems to pick up English rather quickly in this film. However, Davich has a little more trouble with the Drac language, but uh, starts to figure it out along the way. And Davich has asked the Drac, Jerry, to learn the alien language by reading a small book, which is basically like a small locket on a necklace chain that Jerry is wearing. Jerry explains that the small book around his neck is called a Talman, and it is ostensibly the the Drac Bible. Davich finds, finds out that this is a special honor to learn this alien language from this particular specific text. Soon we see Davich on a cliff with uh, now his Drac friend, Jerry, and he has learned some of the language and he's translating the words from the Talman and They are very similar to the teachings of Jesus from the human Bible. And Jerry agrees with that sentiment. Of course, he says, though, that, yeah, that it's very similar because truth is truth. But Jerry says the only difference is how the Drac express the truth. 
I like that. I, I like that a lot. And so it's about how the words are translated into song. So the Drax sing this particular text. And Gossett Jr., as Jerry, begins singing in his strange vocalizations. And it is actually a soothing, calming effect that it has. And it lulls the audience, or at least lulled me into a sense of safety. And I love these quiet moments in film. It's a device used by filmmakers that lulls you into it like this almost false sense of safety and comfort, which then allows for like either a jump scare, like in a horror film or another jarring moment. And in this case, it's a meteor storm. We have meteors hailing from the sky, which we know from an earlier scene in the film can be very, very deadly on this planet. Now, Davich and Jerry race back to their makeshift hut of a home. And along the way, Jerry is holding his stomach and beginning to stumble. Meanwhile, the effects here are pretty awesome. The hailing meteors and the mini explosions are just going off everywhere. And Bill, is interesting. You mentioned like kind of the sets seem feel a little bit cheap or very maybe overly simplified in moments, which I agree with. But in this particular scene, it's pretty awesome. It's very it's a very kinetic scene with Davich and Jerry running through the sets and these explosions going off. Uh, and they're narrowly escaping the hailstorm. Davich immediately picks up Jerry and as Jerry has stumbled and throws him into the hut and is immediately frustrated, calling Jerry lazy and fat. And the argument just escalates into this huge political fight. It's a political discussion about each of their races and their involvement in the war and who was there first and who was to blame for what. And as the argument escalates, so does the meteor storm, which is great. It's good filmmaking in this moment because uh, it just the movie gets really loud. And eventually Davich attempts to choke out Jerry, but finally he lets go of him. And then we get to the meat of the scene when Davich reveals, well, maybe they're just going crazy. And it's just, it's nice when you have such a loud scene and chaotic action sequence that is reduced to this, this really quiet and intimate scene between these two characters when they're after they're just exhausted at literally going at each other's throats they are just broken down and Davich says, are we, are we going crazy? And he expresses his fear that maybe they are alone. And (laughs) Jerry's like, yes, we are alone. Davich mentions he has a reoccurring dream about hearing this loud ship flying above. And again, Jerry says, that's only a dream. Then finally, Davich firmly states that they have to keep moving if they're going to survive. And if they don't, the planet's going to kill them or they're just going to end up killing each other. And that's where the opening quote I had read earlier comes from. So I simply enjoy the character development in this section, going from learning about one another's culture and language in the peaceful moment there to saving one another from a meteor storm to then absolute frustration and over their differences. That's just, you know, comes from their individual beliefs of governments and the way they were raised in their societies battling against each other and just their, warring histories, but it inevitably comes down to that quiet moment uh, between two people just trying to get by and just trying to survive. They have to get over their differences, put them aside to focus on what's important or they'll go crazy or they'll die. That's it. Nothing else matters. So I I found that whole section and that what I'm calling my favorite first favorite scene uh, impactful. Yeah, I definitely agree because I had some of it as one of my favorite moments, meaning anything that dealt with learning about drag culture fascinated me mm-hmm. because yeah 
Agreed. Here we go. Going back to college again. One of my favorite classes that I took, and it was elective, and it was the history of religions. And it talked all about different religions and what they believed and all their kind of ceremonies. And that class always stuck with me. And I think in a way, this was almost learning a new religion and their teacher teachings are similar to some of the religions that we have, or even learning about the Drax doing their lineage. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, that's kind of like a Catholic you get baptized. Or if you're Jewish, it's your bar mitzvah, you know, whatever else you do for religion, for your coming of age. So anytime I could learn anything about the Drax, I was totally hooked into it. And I think it, it, it does stem from the beginning of the movie thinking, you know what? I think the humans are the bad people in this film and the Drax are actually the good people. They're trying to defend themselves. So I think it even made it more fascinating to learn about them to see if what I was inferring in the beginning of the movie is true. Are these Drax actually good people? And throughout the film, it's kind of reaffirming that, that they're just trying to defend themselves. They're just trying to protect themselves. They, you know, they didn't ask to be in this war and this is not who they are. And I think that's one of the things that hurts this movie is because there's a scene later on when Davidge finally gets rescued from the planet and he's got, he's got the book around his neck and they hear he's speaking Drac and they don't explore that. And I was like, oh man, that's a big missing piece because this could have been the first moment of how the war ends and they just, they just skip over it. And that was kind of frustrating to me watching it this time. But just the instance of learning the drag culture, I thought was cool. Anytime it happened throughout, I was hooked on that. Yeah, agreed. Great point. I mean, you're getting to the real meat of it, actually, which I may have been glossing over is the fact that why do you feel the other person, or in this case, alien, is your enemy? Why? Why is it that... Is it because you've been told by your government that this is the enemy? What formed that opinion? How informed is that opinion? And then when you actually get to know your enemy or somewhat understand your enemy, how your opinion will change, especially when it's now on an individual and personal level versus army versus army, mob versus mob. That's really it. It's overcoming these uninformed prejudices against an enemy that you formed an opinion on that you have a, a preconception of that's just right which is something again, we unfortunately do every day now right yeah it's a it's a very real thing that we're all you know probably all guilty of on you know i'm not, not talking on huge level it's just you know sometimes you're judging them based on superficial qualities or rumors or false information, and then things change once you actually get to know them. What was your first favorite scene, Bill Bant, or moment? So this is kind of a moment for me. So as we mentioned in the beginning of the movie, Wills' first goal is because he tries to shoot down the Drac, and he sees that he jettisoned out of a ship and safely lands on the planet. All he wants to do is kill him. That's his number one thought. Not survival. It's just take out this Drac. And, of course, when he tries to kill the Drac, the Drac gets the upper hand. He becomes his prisoner. And the Drac basically makes him do all the the labor to try to keep them alive. And then we get to the point where they start learning each other's languages. They realize they got to work together. And I do like the fact that each of them have to learn each other's language. 
because at first I was like, why is it they have to learn English? But the fact that Willis does learn Drac is good. I like that they, they did that. So what I like, there was a scene when Willis is out hunting and they're chasing these, I just call them turtleoids. They look like, well, they got the hard shell of a turtle, but they look like some kind of, I couldn't even describe it. They're, they're very weird. And that's what they've been basically eating. And David is chasing after this one and he shoots it with an arrow and the thing runs off. So he goes chasing after it and he falls into a pit. Now we've seen what happens is if you fall into one of these pits before, there's a creature underneath and I'll just call it the pit fiend. These tentacles come out of the sand, drag you under the sand, eat you, done. So David falls into the pit, not exactly sure what has happened, tries to crawl out. All of a sudden he sees the tentacle come out and you're like, oh shit, he's in trouble. And he tries to avoid it. He cannot. The tentacle wraps around his leg and tries to start pulling him in under the sand. So Will starts yelling out for Jerry. And Jerry, right away, as soon as he hears he's being called, immediately goes to help. He gets there. He sees that Davidge is in trouble. He shoots the tentacle, pulls Davidge out of the pit. Then we see the actual creature itself for the first time, which is huge. He shoots that a couple times and it goes away. So now Jerry is tending to Davidge's wounds and uh, you can see his legs messed up pretty bad while he's trying to bandage him up. Davidge says to Jerry, you saved my life. Why? And Jerry makes a kind of a comment. Well, maybe I need to look at another face, even one as ugly as yours. And Davidge goes back with, so you still think humans are ugly? And Jerry goes back with, compared to a drac, very ugly. But that thing out there is even more ugly than you. And Davidge thanks him. And Jerry says, you're welcome. And I think this is the moment they realize we definitely need each other. And we definitely trust each other. And it takes the relationship to a whole new level. Because they don't know how much longer they're going to be on this planet. And I I just thought it was a good moment. Because there was the moment that you don't know where the two of them are at. But the fact that when Davish was in trouble, Jerry did not hesitate to spring into action and save him, not only for his own mental health, so he's not on this planet by himself, but he has a friend. And now they're both friends. That was a good moment. Absolutely. Completely agreed. It's heartwarming. That's what we want to see. That's uh, it. You nailed it. I can't really add anything. I, I they they're saving each other's lives it's again it does somewhat come down to a fear of being alone but instinctually and as individuals these are both good characters at heart they're just in the midst of a a war fighting for reasons that are not their own that belong to their their you know respective governments but in this intimate scenario you're right. They need each other, but it's but inevitably, you know, ultimately it is more, more than that. They start warming up to one another here in that scene. So great moment. I mean, especially when you have Jerry dressing Davich's wound. You know, he's really administer. He's a caretaker in that scene. Right. He's really taking care of him. It, not only did he save his life, but then he's actually tending to his wound, taking care of. Him. So yeah, my next scene. I am simply calling lineage. You'd mentioned it already. Oh, okay. Because this was, again, the next quiet scene that I, I particularly enjoyed it and it resonated with me. And at this point in the film, 
It's snowy season on Firing 4, and Jerry the Drac has revealed to Davich that he is pregnant. Oh, boy. So, one night, amidst a deep slumber in their makeshift hut that is covered with the hard shells from the turtleoids that uh, Bill has named so appropriately, well, suddenly, the pit fiend reappears. That was the monster at the bottom of the quicksand that we saw earlier, but this time he reappears from the ground almost underneath our protagonists inside the hut. The monster's tentacle grabs hold of Jerry, wrapping around his neck and choking him when Davich finally awakes and then uh, releases Jerry from the grip of the monster, and they both escape the hut as it comes crashing down upon this monster or pit fiend collapsing onto the monster, all amidst what seems to be an earthquake, or what I should call firing quake. Our protagonists escape to a cave up on the mountainside, and it is here they find shelter. And Jerry says he will bestow upon Davich the honor of learning his lineage. Davich doesn't take it quite seriously at first, makes a little joke, but something to the effect of, can we do it after breakfast? Then Jerry says... Okay, well then, why don't you tell me about your lineage? And Davich tells him about his parents, something to the effect of the fact that his father was a a computer maker and his mother was a waitress and his grandfather was a farmer and his grandmother was a good cook. And then Jerry repeats that back to him. Then Jerry says, well, now it is your turn, Davich, to learn my lineage, the song of the Jeriba line. And this just resonated with me, Bill Bant, because I started thinking about this and why the scene was affecting me on a certain level, because it's about learning another person's lineage, of course, but it's about the legacy we pass on to one another through our own lineage, how we at times, you know, when we, then I'm thinking also when we get to know a friend, that when we get to know them intimately, that we learn of where they came from. Uh, We ask them about their parents, and we learn thus more about who they are, what they became as a result of their parentage, and and what they may pass on to their own kids. And I think about what if someone else was reciting my lineage back to me, just like Jerry is reciting Davich's lineage back to him, what it would sound like and how it would affect me. And then it would cause me to think, oh, hearing that out loud just makes me really think about where I came from. And the qualities that I have gained from my parents and those that I may pass on to a gen- the generation after me. This scene, Bill Band, is also a great example of how two good actors telling simple stories can be very engaging. You can tell that they're good actors because they are actively listening to one another. It draws the viewer into the scene. I just like watching the reaction shots on each one of these characters as each is talking about their lineage. I, don't know, I found it effective. And and also, it's interesting because Davidge is tasked with then learning the Dariba line of lineage and that he's going to have to sing this at some point, which uh, we learned that actually Jerry's Drac lineage goes back 170 generations. And Davidge is going to have to sing this entire uh, 170 generations of lineage at some point before the Holy Council of Draken with uh, Jerry's offspring Zamis Zamis I like this discussion between them about uh, lineage 
Yeah. Anything that had to deal with the drag culture, I found fascinating. And you made a good point, too. What works with that scene is the listening and the fact that Louis Gossett Jr. has to do this in full makeup and you still get that feeling of him listening to what Davids is telling him is quite impressive. It definitely made me think about the culture, too. It's like, oh, okay, when you have a child as a drac, does that mean you pass on? Because Jerry really needs to tell Davidge this story. He needs someone to represent his child and speak in front of the council. At first, I thought, oh, when you have a child, you pass away. But I think later on, he says he knows there's something wrong, that he kind of knows something's just not right. And there's a possibility he's not going to survive this. He wants to make sure he's prepared. There's some foreshadowing, no doubt. So I was a little confused, too. I thought it was once you have a child, you pass on. But then it's like, how do you do the ceremony then? Because someone has to represent because it's one parent. It's not two parents. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. My my take on it was that clearly, well, maybe not so clearly, but my again, my take on it was that Jerry had been injured by the pit fiend that it was choking him with its tentacle in the previous scene. And thus, when Jerry is giving birth, there is a complication, and that's why he ends up dying. I don't think normally the Drac parent would die in childbirth. Right. That's what I inferred later on. But at first, yeah. I was kind of worried. I was like, oh, right. is this normal? Exchange your life for another one? That's why the lineage is the way it right. is. Right. Which would make sense. And it's, it would be correct to think that way when we know that in, in different species on our own planet, that actually is the case, mm-hmm. whether it be insects or different random species where the one giving birth dies in the process. It's just part of life and death. But the fact that this is such an important aspect of the Drac culture in the lineage and the legacy, the fact that for Jerry, it's a real honor to learn Davich's legacy. And he repeats it back to him in such a kind of a formal way. You know, he says, and now uh, here is Willis Davich, standing before you, son of Carl, computer maker, and Dolores, a waitress. You know, it's kind of cool how he repeats it back to them. Like, it it just puts it all in perspective somehow. Yeah, I kind of like that too, because I'll be honest. I mean, where I I live, we have a cemetery that's not too far. We have two cemeteries, actually. They're not too far from here. And sometimes when I pass, I'm like, I don't know, it's just a very sense of loneliness because you have grave markers there that when's the last time someone visited them or does the family mm-hmm. know any of that kind of history? And the fact that you do this ceremony that you learn your history of your heritage is great because it just makes you remember all those people that came before you. You're not here without all of them. And I kind of wish we kind of did something like that, to be honest. Not yeah. that we have to have a big <laughs> ceremony, but I just... right. But we take some solace as human beings in knowing where we came from because we have a need to know our place in the universe. Why are we here and what is, where do we belong Mm -hmm. and what family do we belong to? And it doesn't have any bearing on those that don't have a family as far as the person themselves not knowing where you came from, whatever, doesn't mean you aren't, you know, every person has an immense amount of worth. It's just, you know, we do take pride in our lineage and so that comes to bear here in the scene and the drag culture as well yeah i think it's just a scary thing that eventually that some point you might be forgotten completely and at least doing this you're always going to be remembered so i guess it kind of good point great point level there great point 
What else you got, Bill Bant? I saw for sure going into this movie, I was like, I'm definitely not going to pick something out of the third act because I just didn't like it. But watching it this time, um, I think just because I have kids, and it's the scene when Zemis and Davidge are playing football, and after they play the game, he's, you know, he's trying to teach them how to play football, which is hard when you just have two people, and whatever they're using is a football. We'll just say it's some kind of like bread thing. When they're eating it afterwards, and Zemis notices Davidge's hands, and throughout the movie, he, he refers to him as uncle, and he notices that uncle has five digits, whereas Zemis, the drac, only has three. And he gets very upset that at this point has never seen another drac. All he has seen is his uncle, his Davidge, and he doesn't look anything like him. And when he looks in the water reflection, it upsets him that he doesn't want to be a drac anymore. He wants to look more like his uncle. And this affects Davidge when he's like, no, you're a great looking kid. You are who you are. You take after your parent and your parent was a friend and it meant a right. lot to him and you should be proud of who you are. Basically, that's what he's telling the drac. Zemis, I shouldn't say he or she, but um, so I found that very touching because it's something that as a parent you go through with your kids when in some way that they're different or they get teased at school because of something and you have to make them understand that we're all different in some ways and you should embrace that difference, whatever it could be. That's what makes you you. That makes you special. Don't let the outside bring you down. Right. Yeah. So that scene just kind of touched me as a parent. Whereas if I had seen this before I had kids, I'd just been like, okay, yeah, all right, whatever. I love that. That actually tugs at my heartstrings, Bill Bant. It's uh, nicely put. You know, I actually looked at it from the perspective of the child alien, Zamis, the offspring of Jerry. Because he is an adopted child, and I happen to be adopted myself. I was adopted when I was only 10 days old. I do not know my birth parents, but I was absolutely 1,000% blessed enough to be adopted into the most incredible and loving and supportive and nurturing family ever in the universe of the world. So I am extremely lucky. But when you are adopted, one of the, I guess issues that arise is trying to find your place. You don't feel like you belong to anything because you have no frame of reference. You look around at the people that are now your family that took you in or adopted you, I should say, and you don't look like them. You know you're not blood related to them. So who do you belong to? And luckily for me, in my particular situation, my mother told me I was adopted as soon as I possibly could understand the word and the definition of that word so that I grew up with it on having the beginnings of the understanding, even though I probably didn't fully understand it at however old I was, but it was very young. But then it was already a seed planted in my mind and it was not a shock to my system when then I realized, oh yeah, that, that's why I look different than my parents. But it does not mean I am loved any less. It's just that there's a very specific and genetic reason for why I look different. But it's that process of explanation processing that fact that is different. So you're trying to figure out as the child, am I okay? Is it okay that I'm different? That I'm not related, you know, blood related to this family? 
just as Zamis is looking at Davich going, why don't I look at you? This I want to be like you. Why can't I be like you? And he's like, well, because you're a drac and I'm a human. Like it's just right. that straightforward. It's simple, but on an emotional level, it's like, well, no, I want, no, I want to, I want to be part of you. I want to be connected to you on that level. But it's impossible. You know, it's actually biologically, physiologically impossible. But you then learn that, oh, that is not important. And I think that's what you were saying, Bill. Is it has nothing to do with that. It's about the actual connection between parent and child and the nurturing and raising of a child and and then just being loved growing up in a loving family. So that's a touching, yeah, that's a touching scene for sure. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, definitely uh, one of my favorite moments as well. Jason, thanks for sharing. So let's get into Swiss cheese and complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have meteor yes, holes. Yes, so it does not have those meteor holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, I'll start here. So, you know, we're immediately immersed in this, you know, suspension of disbelief. As you know what? I'm going to exercise some forgiveness here and, and say I'll roll with the fact that Firing 4, this unexplored planet, has a breathable atmosphere for humans. I'm going to roll with it for now. But after our spacecraft or fighter I should say starfighters have crash landed on this planet. The Drax spacecraft and ejection pod clearly crashed miles and miles and miles away from Davidge's own crashed ship. Davidge would be walking for days without food or water in order to reach the Drax ship. Not to mention in this fiction that it's supposed to be, again, an unexplored planet. So who knows what the unknown alien terrors are that lie hidden along the way. There's no way Davich survives the trek all the way to the Drak ship. If you the way that it's shot, it just looks like it's yeah, that's certainly like a, way like halfway across the planet. Hell of a hike. It's just that he's got no helmet on. He's got no resources. He's got no tools. He's literally walking a hundred miles in his spacesuit. Yeah, he literally doesn't try to salvage anything from his ship to take with him on this journey and just takes off. He's just got the blinders on. I'm going to kill this track. It's just more of a way that it's that it's shot. It just makes it, it's just a depth of field sort of thing where it makes it look like the Drac crash ship is just a million miles away. And what I can compare it to is I believe one of your complaints from the Dark Crystal when after uh, Jen, the Gelfling, oh, yes. tumbled out of the- False five miles. Out of- uh, yeah, and then looks up and he's like all of a sudden 50 miles away. You're like, wait a minute, you just rolled down the hill. How are you now 50 miles away? Because it looks like in the shot, that thing on top of the hill was a million of miles away, even though, again, probably wasn't. I don't know. It's just one of those things. It looked funny, but I just didn't think there's any way Davich would be able to hike all the way to the drag ship. Yeah, I figured it was going to take him a couple of days. And yeah, you don't know what the dangers are of that planet. And I'm just going to roll away right into speaking of which the dangers of the planet that while he is hiking towards the Drac ship that has crashed, there's a cutaway scene to our pit fiend at the bottom of the uh, quicksand that extends the tentacle. And I just, instead of a pit fiend, called it the mini Sarlacc. It's the Sarlacc pit because this is a 100,000% blatant ripoff from a little film called Return of the Jedi two years previous. The tentacle reaching out and wrapping around the leg in the scene later on with Davidge, just like the tentacle extended from the Sarlacc pit 
and wrapped around the leg of Lando Calrissian. And in this case, the monster hidden below, uh, the only difference is that it's buried beneath quicksand. And in the Sarlacc pit in Return of the Jedi, there's an actual pit in the sand. But I, I just was like, oh my gosh. It's still cool. It's still cool for whatever reason. I guess that's why they did it, because it's cool and it worked. But I'm like, this is literally the same thing. Anyway, those are my first complaints. So I have a complaint that kind of follows your complaint. <laughs> Davidge makes the, the super long trek to find the Drac. And at first he's going to want to sh- try to shoot it with this little pop gun. And then right. he sees the Drac, jumps in the water. And once again, luckily, breathable air, drinkable water. The food sources are okay. So Damage's idea to kill the Drac is to take the fuel from the crashed Drac ship, dump it into their possibly only source of drinkable water, and then set it on fire. I'm like, wait, you're poisoning your only possible source of water. You're not thinking. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great point. That's funny because I have a complaint about this, which I put my additional questions, but it wasn't that perspective. You're absolutely right. Not thinking ahead. Not thinking it through there, Davich. Good old Willis Davich. If you killed him, then what are you going to do? You just poison your water and you have nothing. Yeah. And the setup in the scene is the fact that the Drac, whom at this point we don't know that his name is Jerry. We just know he's the Drac alien who is in the other downed ship here. And he's his ship has crashed right on the shore of this small pond or lake. And once the it starts raining and we see the Drac do his little rain dance and then dive into the water. I have two complaints here, by the way. Where where is the freaking diving consultant again? Here we go in an 80s film. They just don't know how to dive. Why can't anybody learn how to dive? Why is Back to School the only film with good diving in it? I don't understand. The Drac literally belly flops into the lake and then goes underwater. And Davich's instinct is to go back and grab the fuel from the down the crashed Drac ship, pour it on top of the lake and set it on fire. Because his plan was to get down to the, the jettisoned pod of the Drac and steal his laser weapon. And I'm like, why even bother going back to the ship to get the fuel to set the lake on fire? Why go through all that? Well, when the Drac is in the pond swimming around, just run down to the ship and grab the, the gun and shoot him. That's your plan, mm-hmm. right? I mean, why spend all the time in the meantime or in the middle trying to set the lake on fire? And like you said, then destroying your only water source. But of course, the end would be the same because we understand that the Drax laser weapon that's resting on his jettison pod is electrically yeah, booby trapped like, connected yeah. to it. Right. But yeah. So that when Davich actually touches the weapon, it is electrified and, and shocks him. But regardless, I was like, don't waste your time setting the lake on fire while the Drac is swimming underneath the lake, inside the lake. Just go down there, grab the laser weapon and shoot him if that's your plan. Yeah. Why would even setting the lake on fire help? I'm like just poison the water. That was confusing. Yeah. I don't know if they just said, this is going to look cool. Let's yeah, do this. Yeah, that's what it came to. It looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a complaint, Bill Bant. The narration. What's the freaking point? Why is Davich narrating? Did he write a novel about his whole story afterward at some point? And like he's reading from his novel, like he's recounting his tale of one-time enemy Drac alien and that that turns friend and then he took care of his son because it's just unnecessary narration to me and then 
at the very end of the film, the narration changes to another actor's yep. voice. Some absolute stranger we don't know at all. At the very, it's absolutely nuts. Why narration? Studio call. I guess. <laughs> so I found this funny. So in the beginning of the movie, they're trying to build shelter without much success. Yeah. And their biggest fear is, they say meteor. It's technically meteorites. Keep crashing onto the planet. So Davidge realizes that the turtleoid's shell is strong enough that it should withstand a meteorite. But I'm like, yeah, that's great. But right. But if the meteorite hit directly on to their hut, it might block it. But the force of the impact is still going to cause the hut to collapse. Right. These little turtle shells can withstand the impact of a meteorite, but that's the force of the meteorite hitting the turtle shell would force that shell downward. Yeah. It would. It's just. You're absolutely right. Yeah, a meteor. The meteorite shower hitting even a hut covered in these hard shells would immediately come crashing yeah. down. So into the third act of the movie, we yes, that was going to be my okay. Next so we have the slavers. Yeah. And Davidge tells Samis, because now he's under his, or Zami, has under his care to stay away from them, even though there's other tracks. And he wants to go see because he wants to see what other tracks are like. So he eventually runs out there, gets caught by the slavers. Davidge comes to save him, kills one of them. And then when he tries to kill the other one, Zamis gets in the way and Davidge gets shot in the chest and falls. And we think he's dead, even though he's not bleeding, but he has a bullet hole. Yeah, pretty much. In his chest. And of course, moments after that, he gets rescued. And it's good to know that science, even 70 years from now, still sucks because they have no idea that he's possibly still alive because they're almost about to jettison him off into space and he wakes up right before he gets shot off. Come on, man. Isn't medical science a little bit better at this point that they would realize he's still alive? That really bugged me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's way beyond the suspension of disbelief at that point. It's really weird. And he looks dead. I mean, like he when they he's again, the human ship flies over firing four and they see what we think is a dead Davich lying on the alien planet and they pick him up and they bring him and he's in a body bag. Yes. And he's been unconscious for how long at this point he would be dead from exposure i don't know he'd be dead for a lot of different reasons probably at this point but then he just all of a sudden while on the space station and his body is about to be jettisoned into space star trek 2 wrath of khan style he magically comes back to life which is a very predictable moment we knew right it doesn't work for me at all I wanted to touch upon this. I'm glad you brought that up again because you mentioned it earlier and I forgot to, men- to to further your point about when Davich is mumbling the Drac language. First, unfortunately, they think that, oh, oh no, he spent too much time down there with, an, another, with a Drac and he's defected as if he's gone to the other side. And But it's not explored. No. And then all of a sudden, by his actions kind of reinforces that theory that he has defected by stealing a starfighter and blowing through the hangar bay door and going down to the planet only to have his buddies then come fly down and support him. Isn't he breaking all kinds of rules and laws and don't they think he's a defector? And then once he actually reinforces that theory, they go to save his life. They just have a change of heart. 
don't right. know. It's you, very, it's you miss all of that. You miss him being questioned or him trying to explain, hey, they're right. peace loving people or talking to a squad. It's like, hey, they're not they're not really the enemy. So that that would make sense that Agreed. they go down just as proof, like, hey, I I, I gotta go rescue this kid. And this could bring about peace. The fact of the matter, yeah. No, I'll skip. No, you're absolutely right. The, the fact of the matter is this third act is a different movie. And you could have explored different avenues. For instance, that entire sequence when Davich is returned to the human space station, you know, all kinds of cool things could happen on. And then actually, I liked the design of that space station. It kind of had a retro feel. I kind of like, it's a little cheesy and simple, but the design of the human starfighters. It was very, it had a seventies type feel about it, but it looked really cool to me. The exterior. Uh, I like that. The interiors look like shit, but the exteriors look cool. Yeah. It's a matter of taste. Anywho, here's my final complaint, which I think encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about here at about the hour and 10 minute mark. Yes. Spoiler alert. We've spoiled it a thousand times already. Jerry passes away. That's the Drac alien. Jerry passes away and Davich removes the Drac baby from Jerry's stomach. Okay, well, now we have followed the storyline of Jerry and Davich for an hour and 10 minutes. And now the film shifts into a lone wolf and cub slash rescue operation story. It's still a survival story on one level, but it's a significant tonal shift. And it's just jarring because we spent so much time with this two-hander, the main two characters, and then... For the final act, we've replaced one of those main characters and are asked to invest and live in this new relationship in a shorter amount of time. We've only got 38 minutes left in the movie. Of course, we are still invested in Davich and understand the stakes have risen for him and the accountability and responsibility he has inherited is, again, high stakes. He has a real purpose. But that's a journey for Davich somewhere in like the first or second act of a different movie. It'd be just fine and good if this film ended with Jerry giving birth and dying, albeit a sad ending, but it would end on a note knowing that Davidge will not be alone and that he has found a renewed purpose to live on and preserve the track legacy and at the same time joining together the opposing species that were once at war. All great, fine. So I just don't need to see 38 minutes of the adventures of Davidge and Zamis at this point. You know, however, if you're going to do that around the one hour and 10 minute mark, I would have preferred getting straight to the scavengers or the outlaw miners coming after Davidge and a baby Zamis and Davidge having to fight them off, get baby Drac Zamis off the planet. And that's how it ends. I'm just saying we could have cut out at least 15 minutes of Zamis growing up, watching Davidge learning the rewards of parenting, i.e. teaching his adopted Drac child how to stay safe and how to play football and what it means to have an adopted child's perspective. It's all fine and great. It's just a different movie. The film completely transitions to a rescue mission story, and it becomes literally Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But instead of Indy rescuing Short Round from the mine, it's Davich rescuing Sammy's from the mine. Although there is some nice sweeping score music here from Maurice Jarre in the sequence, but a score which in itself is inconsistent in this film, which is another complaint I'm throwing in there. You get some weird Maurice Jarre synthetic synth music in this, and then it goes into sweeping orchestral stuff, which is great. It's just a little all over the place. But yeah, I just, the third act is a major shift. And uh, like you said, Bill Band, it pre- presents a lot of holes in the story and a lot of questions as to motivations on both sides, human and drac. It's, it's weird. Yeah, it didn't work. 
if they ever remake this movie, please just jettison that whole third act. Read the book again. See what you can do different. I agree. The novella that this is based on, the story is about friendship, yeah. right? It's about these two characters. Mm-hmm. That's where it begins, and that's where it should end. Agreed. All right, so let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Jason, who do we choose for this week? So many choices. (laughs) There were a few choices, but uh, this week we chose the one and only Brian James who plays the role of Stubbs, co-leader of the Human Outlaw Miners, or also known as the Scavengers. Brian James, a veteran of over 100 television and 120-plus movie roles, James is best remembered for roles such as the replicant Leon in Blade Runner from 1982. He was Max Jenke, if I'm pronouncing that right, in the Horror Show from 1989, his personal favorite, as well as countless other parts in films like Southern Comfort from 1981, The Player in 92, uh, Tango and Cash. He plays like an Aussie. He has like an Aussie accent in that one and a ponytail. That's in 1989. He was in both 48 Hours and Another 48 Hours. He was also in Silverado. He was General Monroe in The Fifth Element and Big Teddy in Cabin Boy, a classic. From 1994. Anyway, little trivia about Brian James. He was good friends with co-star Rutger Hauer. They made four movies together. And Brian James acted in five films for director Walter Hill. Here's a quote from Brian James. I play out negative fantasies for people. I'm the guy people love to hate. And they always remember the bad guy. Brian James, unfortunately, did pass away in 1999 at the young age of 54. I remember that. Yeah. I remember when he passed away. I was like, oh, I love that yep. guy. And he's in some great, great movies. Great character actor. By the way, you're, you're going to love this. He plays the role of Stubbs in this movie. Here's a little, little Jason Masick tangent. I had a friend in high school Spanish class that was a year or two ahead of me. Super cool dude. And when we were in that classroom and before the class began, he would grab a map from an atlas before class started. We, we would re- pretend to be like Miami Vice agents like planning out a mission on the map of some kind and instead of crockett and tubs we were called sprocket and stubs nice i was stubs and we'd pretend to plan out how we were going to intercept the drug trade coming into miami or spanish-speaking cities or whatever it was funny at the time little improv before spanish class there we go all right let's move on moving on moving on let's move on (laughs) To facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Enemy Mine? Louis Gossett Jr. said in a television interview that he had talked while gargling saliva as a kid, as one of those kid things. He told director Wolfgang Peterson that he thought that it would add a good touch to his character. Gossett performed the odd vocalizations all by himself. No mouth prosthetics or post-production effects and often does the drac voice at convention appearances. That's my impersonation of Jerry. <laughs> right on cue. I literally was going to introduce you. I was going to say, I understand, Bill Bant, that you do a Drac voice at convention appearances. Do it again for us, Bill Well, Bant. he reminds me of Merman from the He-Man cartoons. And... Oh, man. 
<laughs> see Jerry the Dragon Rides. Oh, they could be distant cousins great. for all we know. So, listeners, yes, that is almost exactly what the Drac sounds like in this film, Enemy Mine. You ugly head. I'm not even going to try <laughs> it. That's great, Matt. All right. So, the film began shooting in April 1984 with Richard Lone Crane as director and a budget of $18 million. However, and I've heard different stories about this. After three weeks of shooting in Iceland and Budapest, I've heard one week and I've heard scene three. So I'm going to go with three. Producers became concerned about a mixture of budget overruns, creative differences, and poor quality dailies. So Richard was fired and Wolfgang Peterson was brought on as director. After taking over the project, Peterson decided not to use any of the footage that was already shot by Lone Crane and decided to start from scratch, relocating the entire production and building new sets in his native West Germany. They also redesigned Goss's alien costume to make him look more like Barry Longyear's character as is described in the book. And I've actually seen the original costume. It was online. It looked terrible. That was definitely a good move. Uh, yeah, it did not look good at all. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so Wolfgang was not the original director. They had already spent, supposedly I heard, almost $14 million at that point and had to scrap it. Yeah, I've heard 14 to $17 right, million. Right, but the, yeah, the, yeah. the studio decided to continue with the movie, even though they spent because it, there was a pay-or-play deal for Gossett and Quaid, and it would have cost them just as much just to pay them off. Yep. And we, we have nothing. Right. And so in the end, did it, what did you say this already? I apologize if you did. Didn't it, co- it cost them around 40 million. Right. Uh, I think, yeah. Right? I think they said in total. Yeah. Some, I've seen 29 and 40 because they said 40 includes the marketing costs. So, right. When we get to the box office, I'll probably go with 40. Yeah. Either way, we know that the budget ballooned mm-hmm. as a result of all the issues. But, uh, yeah, and uh, this is going to back up an earlier point you were talking about. Author Barry Longyear reported at a convention that the studio insisted on adding a subplot involving a mine, thinking the audience would not realize that the mine in the title was a possessive, as in my enemy, rather than an object. So, yes, the studio insisted on adding that subplot, which is the bulk of... Third act. I swear, every time I read something like that, I just shake my head. I'm just like, how do any movies get done without studio interference? They're morons. You know what, Bill Band? I I couldn't agree with you more. It's amazing, especially now. Especially now. We well, we're in the midst of a writer strike right now, and we have ongoing, present, ongoing issues between studios and writers. But I'm not going to get into that at this moment. But it's just the fact that there is some sort of creative chasm that occurs between the studios and the actual creators that is just unfathomable and mind-blowing because you hear about it now. We are podcasters ourselves. We listen to a lot of other wonderful film podcasts out there. I do almost every day, and I am constantly hearing about the stories and the battles between the creatives such as directors, writers, producers, anyone uh, even below the line, above the line that are having to deal with studios and having to make creative compromises, things that just take away from the creative integrity of a story. I'll never understand it, but that's because it's a business thing and it's not my place to understand it because I am not a businessman. And I'm sure studio heads could come on here and present a some sort of qualified and, and 
solid argument, but I, I, it's just, there's just too many stories where the studio intervenes and ruins a project. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a money thing. Comes down to, it's a business and the people with the money, controlling the money, whatnot. That's where a lot of the, the decisions are rooted in. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to drop this last huge fact. All right. <laughs> drop the bomb on us, man. My daughter will be 80 years old when this film takes place. <laughs> so she will get to see peace on the oh, planet. Oh, wow. Think about yep. that. Oh, that's great. That's something to that's contemplate. That's crazy. Wow. Uh, here's a little factoid. The pond where Davich and Jerry meet for the first time is the same artificial pond custom built for the model submarine scenes of Das Boot from 1981, also directed by Wolfgang Peterson, as well as one or two scenes from, yes, Bill Band, The Never-Ending Story from 1984, a Peterson film. What else was I going to say? Yeah, The Enemy Mine, uh, you know, is a science fiction novella by American writer Barry B. Longyear. It was originally published in the September 1979 issue of Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine. The novella's plot concerns two soldiers, one human, one reptilian-like alien, who find themselves stranded together on a hostile planet. But the story won the 1979 Nebula Award for Best Novella, as well as the 1980 Hugo Award for Best Novella. And this is cool and was included by Longyear in his 1980 collection, Manifest Destiny. It was followed by two sequels, The Tomorrow Testament and The Last Enemy. All three stories were included in Longyear's 1998 anthology, The Enemy Papers. Interesting. The version of Enemy Mine included in The Enemy Papers was labeled as the author's cut and was significantly revised. That'd be kind of cool to read The Enemy Papers, the anthology. Yeah, that's still available. All three stories. But it's cool when you look at the photo of that Isaac Asimov science fiction magazine from 1979. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. Like, I would love to have that issue and right. read the novella, you know, within it and be like, oh, this is where the movie came from. Speaking of the story, what so, one yeah. change from the book, yeah. from the movie, is in, in the book, Davidge finds a Coca-Cola can in the movie. That's right. I did read yeah. that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Pepsi. Wonder why they made that change. Wink, wink. Hmm. hmm. Let's move on to box office. Enemy Mine was released on December 20th, 1985 on 703 theaters on an estimated budget of $40 million. It grossed $12.3 million domestically. It debuted number nine at the box office behind The Color Purple, which also debuted that week. But The Color Purple played in only 192 theaters. Ouch. Enemy Mine would fall the top 10 the following week, even though its ticket sales increased 24% from the previous week. Problem was, it was the holidays, and the top 10 movies that week all increased their ticket sales from the previous week. Enemy Mine ended up being the 66th highest grossing movie domestically in the United States. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the mid-80s, we'd watch At The Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Enemy Mine was split. Roger thought the film never rises to its own challenges. It creates some interesting characters, but then turns into a standard shoot-em-up fare, while Gene found the movie to be wonderful from the characters, sets, and plot. Let's just say this movie sparked one of those classic Gene and Roger arguments, with Gene being upset that Roger gave away some of the plot. So, yeah, they start arguing with one another. It's pretty funny. So Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 63% and it has an IMDb rating of 6.8. 
And this takes us to additional thoughts and questions. Do we have any additional thoughts and questions about Enemy Mine? My first question, Bill Bant. One of the, the stars of this film is named Dennis Quaid. His last name is Quaid. And so I'm obligated to make you do the impersonation of, I believe, is it uh, <laughs> Quato? Gotcha. From, it's Quato from Total Recall. So it's been, it's been too long, Bill Bant. It's been way too long. We're overdue for a Quaid from Bill Bant on this podcast. Please, please indulge us. Quaid, open your mind. <laughs> Quaid. Ah, <laughs> uh, see again, once again, it's just not fair for the listeners at home. They can't see Bill Bent doing the the hand with the fingers. Quaid. I don't know. Uh, I think you do it better than me now. It's both of us together. Hey, here's a question for you, Bill Bant, a serious question. Okay. When we see uh, Jerry and Davich in their little uh, turtle toy whatever shell hut, mm-hmm. where did the pots and pans come from where they're cooking? They've just got some kitchen wares. I'm going to say they salvaged something from the ship, so it looks like pot and pans. Okay. But that's a good question. I didn't think about that at first. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe if we if they had better lighting, we'd see actually what it was. Could be ship pieces cooking like in an, an iron skillet. And I'm like, oh, that came in handy if they had that on their their starfighter right. ship, you know, a, right next to the first aid kit. It's like, here's your, your kitchen yep, set. In case you crash. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah, so here's my big question. Why do you think it took three years for Davidge to be rescued? I mean, they knew where he went. That's a great question. It's not as if they didn't know where he crashed. Correct. Or at least, yeah, they knew the planet, obviously. Mm-hmm. Might take some time to pinpoint his location, but even then, there'd probably be a beacon on the ship. I don't know, something like that. It's a great point. I couldn't figure that. What else you got? This is my favorite quote from the movie. So Davidge goes, Jerry, old buddy, where would you be without me? And Jerry just has a great comeback back home. It's so true. <laughs> so true. It just made me bust out loud. I think I actually laughed out loud at that line. Yep. That's great. It's like, that was perfect. Kudos whoever wrote that one. That's all I got. That was pretty much, I didn't really have any other questions. I, here was just an additional observation is when Davich is rescued and returned to the space station, there are clearly a couple of uh, sound effects within the sound design that are used in Alien or Aliens or vice versa. They were just really obvious to me. I was like, oh my God, that's the sound effect of the door opening, like vroom, vroom, oh, from okay. Aliens or... It's very recognizable if you're listening for it. Did aliens borrow from Enemy Mine? Are they using the same sound library and borrowing effects? Is are there are those sound effects copyrighted? They could be. They're both. I wonder. They're both Fox movies, right? Hmm. Yeah. There you go. I mean, if that's the case, yeah. Yeah, could be the same sound designer. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Right. I guess you didn't even bother to look at that. That would make sense. Guys, like, no one watched this movie. I'll just use it again for aliens. Simple enough. Okay, so let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five, Pit Fiends, what do you give Enemy Mine? Uh, I'm giving Enemy Mine three Pit Fiends. As I've said, this film is still fun. It's very likable in certain scenes and moments. It sends the right message. It's simply flawed in its overall execution. However, yeah, Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. are wonderful. 
Their friendship in the film is developed enough to get at my heartstrings still today. The storytelling works on some levels, but not on others, just like a whole hell of a lot of other movies. So you could do a lot worse than going back to watch this film again, that's for sure. It's still entertaining and still considered by many to be a cult classic. But uh, yeah, I'm giving it three pit fiends. Bill Bant, how about you? I'm right there with you. Three pit fiends. Yeah, there's definitely some plot stuff that just irks me, but the performances by the two main characters or it makes it work. And I was a lot more forgiving on the third act. Yes, it is a 180 turn in another direction, but um, wasn't as bad as I initially thought it was going to be. So I think um, yeah. if you haven't seen it, I think you would enjoy it enough. It's not, it's nothing great. It's solid. Solid. As Dubs would say in Miami Vice. <laughs> All right, so I think that about wraps up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Next week, we'll be discussing the Oscar-winning war drama Platoon, starring Charlie Sheen, Willem Dafoe, and Tom Berenger. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. You are alone. Within yourself, you are alone. That is why you humans have separated your sexes into two separate halves for the joy of that brief union. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.